Rewind of the Living Dead is brought to you by Germ Death Hand Sanitizer. The only hand sanitizer with 66.6% ethyl alcohol kills 99.9% of germs and smells real good doing it too. So you can check them out at germdeath.com. Visit them at Facebook and Instagram at germdeath. Rewind of the Living Dead is also brought to you by reanimatedrecords.com, your place for movies. That's Blu-rays, DVDs, VHS tapes, they got that. There's music, vinyl, CDs, cassette tapes, you name it, they got it. Vintage, new, used, all that kind of cool stuff. Cool t-shirts from bands, from horror films, posters, uh, action figures, you name it, they got it at reanimatedrecords.com. Fair warning, Rewind of the Living Dead is a review show, so spoilers are ahead. Holiday-themed horror is fairly commonplace these days, but back in the 1970s, it was still almost taboo to cross over a beloved holiday with a truly horrific act. Canadian screenwriter Roy Moore decided to tackle that very subject when he wrote a film based loosely on the urban legend called The Babysitter and the Man Upstairs, which told the story about a girl receiving a phone call warning her to check on the children she was watching, only to discover the assailant was calling from inside the house. Taking that mythology along with a real-life series of murders committed in Montreal, Moore crafted a script that eventually landed in the hands of director Bob Clark. Once Clark got involved, he made a few tweaks and changes to the story and the setting. The updated version took place on a college campus where a group of sorority girls were receiving obscene phone calls from a serial killer who was secretly knocking them off one by one while preying upon them from inside their own house. Remember those idyllic scenes out of your childhood? Crisp winter nights, star bright, sleigh bells, crackling yule logs, candlelight glistening off of shimmering Christmas trees, chestnuts roasting over open fires, carolers beneath snow-covered window ledges. Remember those. Remember them well. After Black Christmas, they'll never be the same again. Black Christmas, starring Olivia Hussey, Keir Dulay, Margot Kidder, and starring John Saxon as Lieutenant Fuller. If this movie doesn't make your skin crawl, it's on too tight. In the latest episode of Rewind of the Living Dead, we're going to lock the doors and trace any phone calls coming into the house as we discuss the 1974 horror classic, Black Christmas. another edition of rewind of the living dead i am damon martin and i'm patrick Guerra. and patrick this week it is our special holiday edition for the second year in a row of rewind of the living dead last year we talked about another christmas classic in gremlins and this year we're going to talk about a true horror classic a true horror film i guess we should say uh in the 1974 christmas themed horror film properly called <laughs> black christmas 
Yes, Black Christmas. Ho, 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 all you horror fans out there. It's Christmas season again. And uh, I, I, Black Christmas is just how I like my Christmas. Scary, dark, nasty, depressing. Um, yeah, in general, just an awful time. And uh, I, I love I love that most Christmas movies really are about bringing out the worst in people. And Black <laughs> Christmas is no different than that. Yeah, it really is. And, you know, it's it's crazy because, you know, there are a lot now that you think about it, like we've now done two in a row. We did Gremlins and now we're doing Black Christmas. But there actually are a lot of Christmas themed horror movies. I mean, of course, a lot of people remember more recently a, a movie called Krampus, which uh, is, you know, still gets a lot of replay around this time of year. And of course, Silent Night, Deadly Night, which was probably the the horror themed christmas film i was most familiar with because i saw that when i was a kid because i always remember that iconic vhs cover of santa's arm hanging out of a christmas or hanging out of a uh, of a chimney with an axe i'll yeah. always remember that vhs cover and so i remember seeing that as a kid i this is so black christmas is quite possibly one of the most iconic christmas themed horror films of all time but watching it now is literally only the second time I've ever seen it. And the first time I ever saw it was probably at least 15 years ago. And I really don't have a great memory of it. Not that I didn't like it. I just don't really remember it. And so sitting down and rewatching it for the podcast was almost like watching it for the first time. And I kind of, you know, for me personally, I, I started to understand the real appeal of this film. Now, the one thing I will say, uh, it takes place at Christmas time and there's some, creepy kind of you know just you know off-putting moments because of the christmas season in this movie but the reality is patrick in my opinion this film could have taken place anytime during the year it didn't necessarily need to take place at christmas i think they added the christmas theme just to make it that much creepier the fact that these horrific things are happening around holidays yeah i mean there's no like you know santa with an axe or any cool things like that i mean it basically it just opens up on Christmas and then Christmas kind of goes away. The theme of Christmas just just completely disappears pretty much after the opening sequence of the film. Um, so it's is it a Christmas movie? Well, Christmas is in the title. But outside of that, no, it kind of has nothing to do with Christmas at all, which a lot of like people's most beloved Christmas movies tend to actually fall guilty of that. Like everyone talks about Die Hard being a Christmas movie. They barely mentioned Christmas. There's a there's a couple of moments in there, but it's not a Christmas movie. A Christmas story. Hold on, whoa, 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 Ho, 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 I have a machine gun now. That is a Christmas movie, my friend. When you kill a terrorist and you put a Santa hat on him and you send him back to his buddies and you say, ho, 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 I have a machine gun now. That is Christmas, my friend. Where is that Christmas? In Florida? <laughs> that doesn't feel like Christmas to me at all. Anyway. Uh, it's settled. It's not a Christmas movie. You're welcome. Um, no, uh, in all seriousness, like a, a lot of a lot of uh, Christmas themed movies tend to do this. But I think what Black Christmas does better than anything, Damon, um, Black Christmas is an incredible story about women. And I mean, like, I want to say like borderline revolutionary. Don't you agree? Well, yeah, oh, absolutely, I do. I mean, and this is this this is not just any old um, a slasher about women being slashed. There's like super serious themes going on here. 
Well, let's let's set the stage here because this film came out in 1974, which means it came out one year after Roe v. Wade was passed, you know, and changed in the Supreme Court, which made abortion legalized for women, you know, women's right to choose. And a year later, this film comes out. And one of the central stories of this entire plot is the lead character, Jess, uh, played by Olivia Hussey, is uh, is pregnant. And she tells her boyfriend that she wants to have an abortion. She's not ready to be a mother. She's not ready to get married. She's still in college and she wants to continue to pursue her dreams. And she's not ready to be a mother. So she wants to have an abortion. And the guy, her boyfriend, is clearly very upset about that and saying, you know, you can't make this choice for the both of us. And listen, those are, those are themes that still resonate very powerfully in 2021, but imagine making this film and and having those choices involved in a film in 1974, a year after the Supreme court ruling. I mean, that's incredibly brave and, and really revolutionary because it's a horror film at the end of the day it's it's a horror film and and you know while horror films are not for everybody and i wish they were i love horror of course you love horror but Mm -hmm. i understand they're not for everybody but most people that go to see a horror film typically go because they want to feel you know why do we love horror films we love the the sense of of dread the sense of being scared without actually being threatened you know what i mean like it's the sense of, of fear without truly being afraid you know you're not actually being chased by an axe murderer or anything but you can get scared and enjoy that 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 adrenaline rush in the movie theater typically speaking and while again there are great exceptions to this rule typically speaking most horror films don't tackle really heavy subjects like this oh, no. there are, there are great films that do don't get me wrong great horror films that do i'm just saying by and large it's not that's typically not what horror films do, you know what I mean? And so for them to do that in 1974 is is wild to me. It's wild. It's fantastic. Like, I love that. I mean, they went right for it. It was fresh on the minds of America. It was, it was, it was completely brand new that Roe v. Wade had been passed. And they were like, we're going to show you the horrors of just being a woman in this in this world. Like there, sometimes there's nothing more horrific than that. That's and sometimes that's the story, and that's what Black Christmas does. Uh, when when Jess says to her boyfriend, like I'm, this is what I'm doing, and he's like, basically threatening her. I mean, he he turns a bit psychotic. That that's the dread. That's the scariness, and it's a real thing. And I bet women in sitting in those uh, seats in 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 the theater in 1974 were like, yeah, I feel this. And like, and then there's of course like the establishment at the time who's probably you know hearing about this film going, oh my god, you know they're just they're 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 promoting abortion. No, they're all they're doing is promoting how scary it is to be a woman who is just trying to make a choice for herself. And uh, and I thought the movie did that so incredibly effective. It's not the only. Uh, plot in the movie there is there is just like a standard slasher plot which we should probably talk about the fact that this predates even what everyone considers the archetype for the slasher which is halloween uh i i watched this movie and i was like and i probably saw it when i was very young and so like my images of it were it's just like random blurriness who knows how much of it i actually watched when i was young Watching it now, I go, oh, this is where John Carpenter got a lot of his ideas, actually. It actually comes from this movie. So even on the slasher side of things, it's revolutionary because it was clear, like, they do the POV thing that that John Carpenter does in Halloween. And you're like, there it is. Well, and, and so I was doing a little research because we talked about Halloween. We've done the Halloween episode, and we talked about how revolutionary that film was in terms of a lot of, a lot of the... 
um, cinematography, a lot of things that John Carpenter did. Doing some research, and I know, I know you mentioned it as well, that, you know, is it the original slasher? And it's not. I mean, there are other examples. Yeah, you could, you know, Again, we could point to, we talked about Texas Chainsaw Massacre, of course, Black Christmas is another example. But one thing that I actually had discovered uh, in doing my research for this film was that the POV shot of the killer, where you're seeing it through the eyes of the killer, uh, that, I won't say it originates because, you know, I'm sure there's probably an example somewhere out there from before this, but one of the first examples of that was actually in 1971, a director, a famous Italian director, Mario Bava, uh, mm-hmm. with his film A Bay of Blood. And that is a film where he actually shows you almost the entire film when you're seeing the killing is from the point of view of the killer. Now, what's unique about this one is, is of course, you know, he's in this film in Black Christmas, they're stalking women, and there was actually a big complaint at the time that it was like it's it's showing horrific acts being carried out against women what they're missing or what people missed when they made that criticism was it wasn't that they were showing the violence against women from that point of view like you're you're fantasizing you know in that role like you're 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 living in the in the role of a serial killer what you're actually doing is you're hiding the identity of the killer and that's Mm -hmm. a major plot part of this movie is you don't know who the serial killer is the only thing we ever see of this serial killer throughout the entire movie is his eye we see his eye a couple of times and we hear all these weird distorted voices when he's making these obscene phone calls we don't ever see his face so seeing everything in that pov in that point of view when he's attacking these women that makes it that much more terrifying not because you're fantasizing about what he's doing it's because you don't know who's doing it the unknown is what's scary, right? And th- like, you know, that's why 99% of our our killers in slasher movies stay behind a mask. It's scary. The unknown is scary. And this movie, like, is like you're never going to see who the killer is. You'll never really know who it is. Um, that's terrifying. That's like the unknown is just straight up scary. Uh, this movie does all of that co- very correctly. Um, I like that it kicked the movie kind of kicks off with the first murder, like during this sorority house Christmas celebration. Um, and I thought to myself, like, oh, it's cool. Like they're going like right for it. I mean, it happens within the opening moments of the movie is the first kill. And I thought, wow, it's smart. They're like kind of like slashers usually kind of build up to the first kill or they'll have like a cold open kill. And then and then the movie meanders for a little while. This movie like pretty much opens up with a kill and I and I and it felt like it was the wheels were already turning but then it did start to suffer from the same thing that slashers suffer from which is a very bloated middle. Now, when I say bloated, right? Like you got to you got to qualify that a little bit. It's it's another plot entirely basically. Uh, uh, there's the the abortion subplot which to me is actually a very riveting and interesting thing, but as a, for a slasher it kind of slows things down. But it's, there's this weird thing where I'm like, well, that is, that is fucked up, though, like what this girl is going through. She doesn't feel safe around this guy. And it tries to lend itself to like, well, he's probably the killer. And they lean heavily into that. I was a little disappointed, Damon, that kind of the, the slashing sort of went away for like the middle third of the movie. Yeah. OK, so I agree wholeheartedly that setting the stage with the murder early in the film and I'm not trying to bury the lead on our on our topics later where are you know, that we're going to get into our categories. But that first murder, you know, is is horrific. I mean, it's you know, it's one of the best scares of the movie. Uh, and yes, then they go into the middle section where you kind of like the killers in the house and he's still there, but you don't know it. You know what I mean? And then they kind of go on with life and 
you have the subplot with the abortion storyline with the lead character Jess, you know, telling her boyfriend that she's pregnant and she wants to have an abortion. You also have the girl who was murdered, her father showing up on campus, you know, looking for his daughter. She was supposed to meet him. She never showed up. And that storyline actually is the is the kind of thread that carries us through towards the ending because he's the one that kind of raises the red flag as saying, Hey, my daughter never showed up. Her friends don't know where she is. Uh, we need to go looking for her. This isn't right. Like something's wrong here. And that the one story storyline that really dragged things out that didn't really make a lot of sense and i understand they're just trying to up the dread factor was the the 13 year old missing girl that they go mm-hmm. on the hunt for and they have like a manhunt for and they end up finding the dead body which again these are all things that happen but that that storyline felt like it dragged away from the rest of the, the the plot of the movie and and that to me was the one thing I think you could have left on left let go and that's about you know 15 to 20 minutes of, of time spent on that weird random kind of storyline that doesn't connect or at least we assume it doesn't connect to anything else maybe it does maybe what they're saying was is that you know he killed this you know girl first and now he's killing all these other girls but they never really make that connective tissue and so you're kind of wondering like why is and was he using that to distract the police so he could get into the house and stay there unabated like i i understand maybe that's what they were going for but they just didn't tell that tight enough in the story to mm-hmm. where it made sense and so that that to me was the only distraction during that you know that middle section where we didn't really get any murders we didn't really get you know the father looking for his daughter and the, and the abortion subplot those were both great in my opinion i thought they both tied in very well to what ends up happening in the story uh that one thing with the missing girl and the and the whole you know search party for the missing girl that part kind of threw me off didn't really make sense yeah, it's it seemed to me the only function it might have served was that like that was his first kill and it was like right across the street from the house that they were all the sorority house. So I just assumed like oh okay it, it was something to set the proximity. But you're right, it's like it does take up a lot of energy in the movie. I mean, if that's about a 15-20 minutes of subplot that kind of doesn't matter to to the to the story that we're like watching. Um, but this is very much uh, the middle part of this movie is very much a murder mystery and investigation. That's kind of what it is. Like it sort of transitions pretty quickly from a slasher into a murder investigation movie, which is fine, but it's tonally a very different thing. And uh, and so and there was sort of like, you know, Margot Kidder's in this for people who go that name sounds familiar. She she's Lois Lane from the Superman movies. And I'm sure she's done other things, but I'll be honest. Uh, also, don't Margot forget, Kidder. of course, from horror. She was in the original Amityville horror movie, too. Also, let's oh, not forget that with James right. Brolin. Yes. Yeah, I'm not going to lie. I don't I don't follow <laughs> I don't follow Mar- Margot Kidder's career. Um, but there was like a, a subplot with her and alcohol abuse and stuff. So the middle of the movie is sort of this weird amalgamation of like this investigation and then like two kind of after school specials going on, which is the Margot Kidder is kind of boozy. And uh, th- there's also like the I think it was like a sorority mother or whatever. She was a kind of boozy, too. There was a there was a bit of theme going on there. Well, um, I and think then the, the, I, and then I think the, the abortion subplot, which I liked. I like that one very much. I think the Margot Kidder one, to be honest, I think that was more of like a comedic subplot more than it was like a cautionary tale. I think she was just kind of like the comedic. <laughs> that's, a, that's funny in the 70s. Yeah. Like, like, hey, I, look how funny this boozer is. Like, I think, well, I mean, again, you know, I mean, it's 1974. No, right. like, you know, and then like the, the house mother you know constantly you know finding her hidden booze throughout the house which was kind of ridiculous but i think i I, from what i've read on online also i want to mention this we didn't i didn't say this at the top of the show and i wish i had bob clark of course as a director you know nine years after he makes black christmas he also directs another christmas movie much different in tone this time it's called a christmas story 
Uh, He is the director behind A Christmas Story, the movie that plays 24 hours over Christmas on like TBS or TNT or whatever channel it is. Uh, He's the director behind that, the one, the the infamous, you know, Red Ryder BB gun, uh, which is hilarious that he made that nine years after making Black Christmas. But um, from my understanding, Bob Clark was the one who added in a bit of the comedic elements with Margot Kidder's character, uh, with the house mother being kind of a drunk and that, you know, that was kind of their joke. And that was like, cause it was much more serious and there was no comic relief and he kind of injected that in there. So they were meant to be comedy bits and they were, there were some funny parts in there, you know, her being a bit of a lush and, and the, and the house yeah. mother, you know, literally hiding her booze in books and in the toilet and everywhere else in the house. She's got your alcoholism as a joke. Yeah, it like, makes, but it seriously. makes sense, right, Bob? Bob Clark also directed the Porky's movies, if anyone out there remembers those. And they're just screwball comedies. Yeah, so he kind of injected a little bit of that into this movie. And, and you know, you know, listen, I, we can la- we can all laugh at, 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 you know, I think sometimes I'm not saying that alcoholism isn't serious. I'm saying that I think we can laugh at things sometimes and not take them serious because we're living in a world right now, Patrick, not to go off on a tangent. We're living in, well, I'm going off on a tangent, but not, you know, <laughs> yes, you not are. to go too far. We're living in a world right now where Peloton bikes are taking like an 11% stock crash because a character in a freak, I'm not going to say what it's out there. I'm sure people have seen it. A character in a freaking TV show dies riding a Peloton. And so everyone's freaking out and getting rid of their Pelotons. Now, I don't care whether you ride a Peloton or not. I'm not a Peloton, whatever. I don't care. But that has to be one of the three stupidest things I've ever heard of in my entire life that a TV fictional TV character dies riding a bike that just happens to have a name brand and now suddenly people are not wanting to ride that bike anymore because they're okay if you do that if you get rid of your i'm just gonna say you get rid of your peloton bike because you saw it in a tv show that a fictional character a fictional character uh dies riding just you're done just stop 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 you got you got nothing left okay you've already crossed the border you're done uh but I'm going to so, add a little bit to this tangent but, because I own a Peloton. Yeah. My Peloton's not going anywhere. That's the dumbest thing ever. And really, it's like we need to close this tangent because I will go on a whole other tangent, which is market manip- manipulation. And it's like literally like everybody talks about the stock market and shit. It's all it's all bullshit. Anyway, rant over. But uh, yeah, it's kind of ridiculous. But so my point is, when going off on you talking about Peloton, is that is that we got to learn to laugh for ourselves. You know, I mean, like yes, yeah, alcohol, like, alcoholism yeah. is a very serious issue. I grew up with it. I had a parent who was an alcoholic. Mm-hmm. I understand it. So I'm not trying to mock that, but I'm saying like we can laugh at it. And in this case, I think the injection of you know Margot Kidder's character and the house mother both being lushes, I think that was really meant to be comedic relief. It wasn't meant to like I don't think it was a cautionary tale about the dangers of alcohol and and college life or anything like that. Yeah, there's no. plenty of, there's plenty of movies about that, but I don't think that's what they were saying with this one. No, and the 70s and the 80s had a weird way of like laughing at things that weren't necessarily funny and the execution wasn't like top shelf. And I, I you know, uh, all, all credit due to Bob Bob Clark and company, but it, it wasn't exactly the most well executed, you know, satire. <laughs> it was it was a little bit more parody than satire. Uh, uh, so it was it was kind of goofy and strange. And I think it, Something about all the subplots of this movie seem a little strange and weird. But again, back to the abortion thing like that, that to me was like that was the major thing in this movie was this this girl being like um, terrorized by her boyfriend because she wanted to get an abortion. Like I, I joke and say after school special, but like that, you know, 
it, that would have been a great and effective after-school special all on its own, just a horror movie about Jess trying to escape her boyfriend who's like, who wants to force her to have a baby. It, and like that, it's so crazy to me how right they got that, how scary that, that like when I felt like I was in Jess's shoes, which is kind of hard to do since I'm a guy and I can't get pregnant, um, you know, but just to be in her shoes, uh, that part of the movie, Damon, is about as effective as it can get and I and I said this a little bit to you right before the podcast. This is a horror movie that is a must see for women, like a hundred percent. Yeah, it's really effective in that way. And and then going away from that particular storyline, talking about the actual horror part, the horror elements of the of the story. When you're talking about the killer inside the house again, that's a that's a that's a, a, a urban legend we've all heard a million times by now. You know, in this day and age, the, the calls are coming from inside the house. We all heard that. We've all heard right. that story. There's some version of that you know, from, you know, throughout horror history, but this is 1974. This is, you know, one of the, probably the first to do it. You know what I mean? So we got to take yeah. it at what it was, which is a kind of a revolutionary story of taking that and doing it. And also the killer who, who we never see. Okay. The, you never see the killer. You see his eyeball. That's it. You never see, this is a creepy bastard. I mean, those phone calls where he's calling <laughs> oh, yeah, and got to the phone calls when, when he's calling and like, you know, doing all these different voices and, you know, talking about Billy and then he's really obscene, like talking about, I'm not going to mention the language cause it gets pretty nasty. Yeah. Uh, it's scary. I mean that like, again, cause I remember, you know, I grew up, you know, when we still had home phones, like I grew up before mm-hmm. cell phones, uh, when you used to have the phone and when people would call and you get obscene phone calls, you get people hanging up and you didn't have the accessibility of those days of, you know, star 69ing and you didn't have caller ID and things like that. So when people would do things like that, it was, it could get kind of scary. And, and imagine if you're in a sorority house, nothing but women, all, you know, more, more or less, there's only a couple of three of you in the house and you get these really creepy, obscene phone calls. And this guy is like, what what made what made me what made me really like the call part of it is because it's really creepy it's effective it's it's really off-putting and unlike another movie like let's say new york ripper which also uses weird phone calls there's no quacking duck in the background uh, this what, is actually like ducks this That's is actually like but it was my i'm joking about new york river but <laughs> this was actually scary like the voices and everything i was like this is creepy as hell really creepy yeah actually the killer in this movie is very creepy like what you get of this killer which is mainly in the prank calls which is sort of a thing of the past like prank calls can't really exist anymore because pretty much everybody has caller id on their cell phones uh prank calls were a big deal in the 70s and 80s like prank calls were just a thing uh because you could anonymously reach out to somebody and and say whatever you wanted to say and it was insane um i remember i used to like just for fun when I'd get prank calls in the middle of the night, because I had a phone in my room, and that's how that was that was a big deal, Damon. That was a big fucking deal. I had a phone <laughs> in my room. Um, I'd pick up on the prank caller at like eleven at night, and I would try my hardest to like keep them on the phone, and <laughs> like I talked to them for like a half an hour until they finally gave up and hung up. I don't know. Call me a weirdo. I just like it was it was it was some sort of a challenge I would uh, pose to myself, like how long can I keep this weirdo on the line? Uh, yeah. In this instance in black Christmas, you know, it, it, it's, it's the perverted prank phone call. And the guy just sounds absolutely psychotic and kind of can do like multiple voices. Like he's, he sounds like a woman at some point, And at some point he sounds like a little kid. And then he's like a raving maniac. And I was like, man, this is kind of, this is kind of weird. Like the way they did it was weird and effective in its own right. 
Yeah, it was really creepy. Like I said, it was really creepy and off-putting. And again, you know, ahead of its time, the fact that this all, you know, we all know that the killer's there. And then when you have the big revelation, you know, they're tracing the, you know, because one thing I, so one thing I did like about this, that, you know, you could have gone another direction with this movie, which is, you know, they could have easily spent half the movie just chasing the girls around doing different things. And and yes, you could say they could flesh out those characters a little bit more, but I could see another version of this movie where it's just the hijinks of college sorority girls. And you get into, you know, the typical horror movie tropes of, you know, uh, you know, boy and girl getting together, some random nudity, somebody in the shower. You know, these are all things that could have been what I what I really like about Black Christmas is they don't go down that route. They actually go into you know the police getting involved and actually, you know, looking like for the biggest part of the movie, you know, uh, capable police officers like they believed something's wrong. You know, they put a trace on the phone, you know, they're out, you know, they're out hunting. They put a police officer outside the house. Like these are all things they're lulling you into assault in a false sense of security because what we're so used to dealing with in horror films, uh, and this still happens today is inept cops who don't know what they're doing. They don't believe the victim. Uh, you know, they're, they're too stupid to actually take anything seriously. And so the killer could just kind of get away with it because the cops are dumb and, and, you know, or, you know, you get the other side, which is, like I said, they don't believe you. Like, this is what's happening. Okay, miss. Sure. That's what's happening. You know, we, that's right. what we kind of, that's what we kind of grown accustomed to in a lot of horror films. In this film, they actually make, you know, the main cop led by John, the great John Saxon. Of course, a lot of people know from Nightmare on Elm Street played Nancy Thompson's father. And uh, he was also, of course, in um, Enter the Dragon, you know, great John Saxon, late, great John Saxon, by the way, passed away uh, not that not that long ago. Um, but like every sense of what you get in this film is that the cops are not inept morons. Like they're actually like they believe something's wrong when this girl doesn't show up to meet her father. They start investigating. Then they find out about these obscene phone calls. And so they actually start, you know doing something about it like they really and then when that little girl that 13 year old girl is found dead they they kind of up the ante there again little do they know that the threat is inside the house and that makes it that much scarier because they don't seem inept they don't seem like dumb cops you know just falling over themselves they actually seem like they're doing a good job and i enjoyed that they kind of went that murder mystery subplot because it was different than what I'm used to seeing in these films because in every other version of this movie, Patrick, I guarantee you, it's a, it's a it's a girl in a shower naked who gets killed. It's a girl and her boyfriend making out and having sex in the bedroom and they get killed. It becomes, I know you love it, but it becomes every Friday the Thirteenth movie where it's just a, a series of horny teenagers getting murdered. And I, there's a version of this where the, it's that movie, but the fact that they yeah. actually kind of turn it into a bit of a murder mystery, you get the element of the abortion storyline with the, the boyfriend who's clearly a little bit off. You know, he's a, he's a classically trained pianist. He, he's supposed to go through this big audition. He screws it up because he's so, you know, he's, he's so distracted by the news that his girlfriend's pregnant. She wants to have an abortion he ends up smashing his piano because he blows the audition you kind of realize like this guy's a little bit off his rocker. He's threatening, you know, he's very like, you know, unhinged a little bit after getting this news. So you kind of believe he's the one doing all this. He's coming after his girlfriend for what she is, you know, doing to, you know, to, to have the abortion. All, again, these are all things that you would not typically see in a film like this, because again, there are a million versions of this that are Friday the 13th. And again, I'm not saying that I, you know, I know you love Friday. I like Friday the 13th. I'm just saying like, that's what it becomes. And they didn't go that route, and I appreciate that. 
it is a different thing. I will argue that maybe making the cops competent made that part portion of the story actually kind of a little boring because it was rather procedural and and the procedure was going as planned. Like I think that like uh, I saw a movie recently where that happened. I cannot remember what it was. Oh, it was actually um, Army of Thieves. Um, the 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 follow up or pre- follow up prequel to Army of the Dead, which is just about a bank heist. In the bank heist, like everything goes to plan. They always succeed and they just move on to the next bank heist. Like there's no complication. So the fact that the cops like did their basic procedure and it's sort of, you know, if the, the biggest twist of all, all of their competency was that when they did finally trace the call, it was coming from inside the house. Outside of that, the police work was effective and, uh, you know, w- without much fail, so that to me kind of made it a little dry, I would say. Is you know it's not it's not a failing of storytelling or anything like that. It was just dry. It was sort of like, okay, this happens, then this happens, then this well, happens. Well, and so, so here's where I'll disagree. And I I mean I agree with what you're saying. It is that. It's very procedural. The where I disagree though, what I like about it is is the twist at the end. You know, they they think they figured it out. They it's the boyfriend. It's 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 Peter. Right. He's got obsessed with his girlfriend after she told him that she wanted an abortion. When they find that out and they start, you know, researching it, they're convinced it's him. And and you think we all think it's him. When he yeah, comes no, in they at do the a end good and, job of that part. Yeah. You know, when he breaks in the window and then of course, you know, Jess ends up killing him because she thinks he's the killer he's coming after. We're all convinced of that. And the police seemingly do their jobs. They stop the killer. Then, you know, at the end of the movie, and uh, the movie's, you know, 40-plus years old if you haven't seen it. This is not really spoiler, so don't complain. Uh, at the end of the movie, you know, they, they've rescued the girl. They, they're doing everything, you know, they're supposed to do, and they leave her. They basically give her some drugs to help her sleep, and they leave her alone in the house. They all walk out, and then you come to realize they never went to the attic where the other girls were. The, the, the house mother and the original girl who got killed, who got suffocated to death, they're still up there. They never found them because they never went to the attic, which is where this killer had been hiding the entire time. And so when the movie ends, it ends with her asleep, Jess asleep in the house, the phone ringing again because this this sicko is still calling, trying to you know torment his victims. And, and you kind of get the impression, they don't show it, but you kind of get the impression that she probably gets killed, uh, you know, because the cops didn't do their jobs. They didn't find the killer. They didn't search the house effectively enough because they thought they had their man. And in that regard, for this kind of a movie, I just, that's genius to me. Like they made it seem like these cops or this cop, Lieutenant Fuller, the guy played by John Saxon, he knew what he was doing. He was, he was very on top of this case. They had it figured out when, when Peter attacked, she got the better of him. They stopped the killer. The girl is safe, you know, day saved. And the fact that they leave her alone and then you find out that the killer's still in the house and she, you know, she's probably still going to die. That is such a twist for that kind of a movie. Oh, I don't argue that the twist is great. Getting to the twist was not that fun. That's my point. My point is like, Everybody like I've known about the twist of this movie forever. Um, and and but and even but even in watching this, I was like, wow, they're really leading me down the path that um, it's the boyfriend. Like they're making it really, really clear. And I'm and I, and I was like sort of remembering fuzzily. I was like, I don't think it's the boyfriend, though. I think there's some twist to that. And uh, and but I remember the ending forever, which is like the calls come from inside the house and they actually don't end up getting the killer. But they do a great job of leading you 
to uh, to believing it's the boyfriend to the full blown setup at the end where he, they find her um, near death and and the boyfriend dead because he was he was attacking her. So it all seemed to make sense. But I did like the twist. I, I don't dislike the twist at all. Just getting there was not that fun. Yeah, and, I, and I and I and I disagree a little bit only because again I'm so used to seeing inept cops and dumb cops and you know kind of you know and and, and the typical storyline of what we would normally expect to see in a movie like this that we didn't get that I enjoyed it because yes it was a little procedural in terms of you know they're they're tapping the phone lines they're trying to trace the calls all these kind of things I understand that but I it's again like an episode of the wire but as a as a guy who loves those kind of films those kind of movies those kind of you know when I watch you know and again this is a much different you know when you, when I watch those kind of films those kind of TV shows I enjoy them and so I I liked that it was different. I liked that they went down that road, that they didn't travel down what you would typically see in a horror film. They avoided those tropes. Or again, in 1974, they're kind of creating their own tropes, I guess. Right. But uh, that they didn't, they didn't follow that path. I mean, I guess you know when you get to when you get to Halloween and you get to Friday the Thirteenth, they kind of laid the groundwork because in Halloween we joked about, you know, the ineptitude of the cop in that movie, how angry I got at Sheriff Brackett being an idiot, (laughs) you know, and, and and then, you know, the, the kid, there's, you know, no police in that way, but in Friday the 13th, like just these kids being oblivious to what's going on around them. Uh, these kids in this movie, these teenage girls, these, these girls in the sorority, they understand something's off, you know, they get it. And then the police actually believe them again. Maybe that distracted me to the point that I wasn't dealing with a bunch of idiots who just don't understand they're being stalked by a freaking serial killer. But I enjoyed that. I enjoyed that. It was just different. It wasn't what I expected. It didn't follow down a, a road that I'm so used to seeing because I love slasher films. I've that's been well documented on this show for the past year and a half. I love slasher films, my favorite genre of horror film. But the problem is, and why it's so hard to make a good slasher, in my opinion, uh, or even a modern day slasher, is that they all still tend to follow a formula. And I like when you don't follow that formula. And again, 1974, they're not following; they're creating a formula. Uh, I wish more directors and more writers had followed Black Christmas than what we see. And don't get me wrong. I love Halloween. I love Friday the 13th. But that became the 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 that became the blueprint dumb teenagers don't know it's it's what they discuss in scream you know what i mean it's what they say in scream like the you know the 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 girl the girl is always running up the stairs when she should be running out the front door you know like all the things that kind of became you know commonplace in slasher films in the 80s that they kind of made fun of in scream that's kind of what you would expect black christmas to be but it doesn't do that no, I do appreciate that. I think I think everything pre 1980s horror, any horror film made pre 1980s, and this includes uh, Halloween, um, they were just making a movie, like first and foremost. That's kind of what they, they were like. Yeah, we're making a movie. It happens to be a horror. And then once the 80s hit, it's like we're making horror movies and we're making franchise movies. That's a that now you're in a factory situation. Now you're cranking things out. And they were. They were cranking them out year after year after year. Friday the 13th got sequels every year from 1981 on. Like that they got they got a sequel every single year for the entirety of the 80s. Like that's how things were going. So when you, when you get movies like this, like Black Christmas, like Texas Chainsaw Massacre, like Halloween, like Psycho. Um, uh, lots of great like one-offs from the 60s and 70s. Um, you're getting people who are just making a film, and it happens to be terrifying. Like that's great. I mean, I would love us to get back to that, and I think to some effect we we are getting back to that. That it just doesn't draw the same attention. It doesn't draw the same box office. You know, everything today is about business and making the money. 
Black Christmas was about making a movie, making a statement, putting a theme out there. In my opinion, it wasn't entertaining all throughout, but it was absolutely an effective film, like 100%. Yeah. Yeah. All right. With that said, with that said, let's get into our categories tonight because we got a lot of categories to get to with this movie, and we're going to kick things off as we do each and every week here on the show with best performance. So, Patrick, for Black Christmas, what was your best performance, or should I say, who was your best performance? My best performance was Andrea Martin, uh, who played Phil. Um, she had a great little a uh, crying scene, kind of, kind of went, kind of at the at the peak of the film when, when things are really, when shit's really hitting the fan, she breaks down. And this is just, this is just to my last point, which is like, they were making a movie and Andrea Martin as Phil was giving a performance. Like she wasn't just like, you know, like a uh, girl number three who gets stabbed. Like she was upset and sad and, and, and like, she was this like emotional anchor in that portion of the movie. And I was like, damn, like that's, that's full blown just movie stuff. It has nothing to do with horror you could have played that clip at the 1974 Oscars for Best Supporting Actor right there. So I got to give it to Andrea Martin. Yeah, I also want to say before I give my best performance, I, you know, again, we can we talk about horror films can, you know, you don't get they don't necessarily get made, you know, make or break on good or bad performances because we've said many times that, you know, sometimes you don't get great performances, but you can still have a great movie. And we also talk about how when you really load a cast with a list talent, it can kind of up the, you know, up the ante and makes it a better movie because you do get great performances. I will say with black Christmas for a movie at the time that did not have a lot of like known actors or anything, it wasn't like a big budget movie or anything. I thought that all the performances were solid. I thought they were yes. all pretty good. Um, for me, I, I listen, I'm going with the obvious one. I know I'm going with the, obvious one but i just i, I love it is is john saxon as lieutenant fuller uh he, you. john saxon is such a great actor i loved him and so much of the stuff he did of course nightmare on elm street one and three uh you know dream warriors being one of my all-time favorite horror films my favorite of the nightmare on elm street franchise uh he's great of course he passed away a couple years ago but john saxon was so good in this movie and listen he played the the quintessential cop but what i liked about him as I said, I don't want to keep beating a dead horse here, but you know, he played a, a, a what we thought was a competent police officer. Like he believed the girls. He wanted to get the killer. You know, he was going after the lead that he was given, which was the boyfriend, all these things that, you know, every other cop in every horror movie would fall over, you know, n backwards trying to figure this out. <laughs> this guy actually seemed to get it. And so I thought his performance was great. He was, he had a couple of kind of comedic moments making fun of Sergeant Nash. And, and then, you know, he got more serious when he was talking about, you know, the call coming from inside the house. And, uh, I just thought he was great. And like I said, John Saxon, you know, I love him in general, but I thought he did a great job in this film. Yeah, fair enough. I mean, it, it is. It's a cast like even uh, the the uh, Olivia Hussey who plays Jess, the lead. Uh, everybody does a good job in this movie. It's again, yeah, they were they were out there just making their movie, and I think I think that's the key to if you're at home listening and you're a burgeoning filmmaker, just make a movie first, and and the horror elements are part of it, and you come up you come away with something memorable because you're you're character focused. Uh, you care. I mean, you need plot in a in a in a film, obviously. Um, it, but not always, you know, sometimes it is just about making intriguing characters. So treat it as a movie first and you get something that sort of stands the test of time. That's why we're talking about Black Christmas this year, because it's a rather iconic Christmas horror film. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, let's talk about our favorite character, because there were some interesting, some funny, some dramatic, all these kind of characters. So, Patrick, who is your favorite character in Black Christmas? 
I loved Mrs. Mack, who was the <laughs> uh, the house mother uh, for the sorority. And it was just it, she was a real goofy boozer. And I just liked her whole energy. And I was like, this is somebody I'd party with. I'm down. I'm down with it. Like, I just I, I, every time she was on screen, I enjoyed it. Yeah, she was like a drunk Mrs. Garrett from Facts of Life. You know what I mean? Like, <laughs> totally she, drunk Mrs. Garrett. Yeah, she was like totally a drunk Mrs. Garrett. Like she's just like I loved it. She's like hiding booze all over the house and books and toilets and all these different places. <laughs> and she's like she was very much the comic relief. You know what I mean? And then she dies pretty horrifically too. I you know? know she has one of the best. She almost made my best kill in the movie. Yeah, she had a pretty horrific death. You know, she was searching for uh, was the uh, was the cat. You know, her poor cat that she. Right. Keeps looking for and then you know she gets the old hook in the face uh but yeah she was great you know she had and she i, I thought the interaction with her and uh mr harrison the, the parent that came to the house when she's right. like trying to cover up some of the obscene posters and stuff she's like oh no no they're learning sir uh it was pretty funny uh my favorite character and you know, again i kind of with the john saxon one kind of going for a little bit of the obvious one but it is jess olivia hussey is jess and the reason i give that is because uh I love that subplot. I love the, 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 the writing and I love the subplot for that character. I'm not trying to turn this into a political debate and say whether you should or should not support the right to abortion. I'm not going to turn that into that conversation. But again, in 1974 to have that conversation, to have her as a character, you know, stand up for herself and say, let's, let's take the abortion conversation out of it. There's a scene later where her boyfriend, Peter comes up and says, I'm going to stop trying to be a concert pianist, a classically trained pianist with a dropout you know, get a job and we're going to get married. He just says that like, we're getting yeah, married. And he like, tells that, her you're going to stop doing what you're yeah, doing. Too. You're going to, you're going to stop doing what you're doing. We're going to get married. There's no choice. There is no like, you know, romantic proposal. He's like, you're going to get, we're going to get married. And she's like, no, basically like, forgive yeah. my life. Fuck you. Like, I'm not, I'm not doing this. Like, no, I want to, I want to go to college. I want to have a career. And you know, these are things that a lot of women didn't, didn't say in 1974. Or you didn't have that option when, when things were, you know what I mean? Like that was still an era where sexism 100% now granted sexism still very much exists now but I'm saying like back then it was almost accepted sexism you know what I mean like you just kind yeah. of accepted that it was going to happen and the fact that she stood up for herself and was basically no I'm not going to marry you and give up my dreams just because you suddenly had this epiphany that you want to become a husband and father screw you and so I love that I that scene might be my favorite scene in the entire movie it has nothing to do with the horror it has nothing to do with like the plot Right. of the actual movie i just love that she stood up for herself was just like no i'm not doing this it, her jess's plot is is the best plot of the movie it really is it's bad it's way to me it's way better than the the killer plot like i as far as things that are memorable in this movie her her plot is incredibly memorable and it does it does you know the performance helps it a lot uh, it's just it's revolutionary. It's it's a maybe we'll get into it a little bit later. But I mean, I, I think of uh, other there's other films that, uh, that that women should watch and, and they just happen to both be horror films that are like, yeah, like see, see like see the kind of agency that women can have. And at this time and place. It was absolutely revolutionary uh, what, what they did with her character. Yeah, I loved it. I loved it. All right. Let's talk about best line. Uh because you stole my best line, uh, <laughs> which is kind of ironic that it seems like every almost every time we do these shows, we don't just, again, for anyone might be new or, or hasn't listened to you know, older episodes of the podcast, 
Patrick usually comes up with the categories and then I kind of react to that. I do the tech side of stuff. He kind of does that kind of thing. And so I don't know what he's picking. We don't know what each other's are going to say. You know what I mean? So I don't, you know, we don't go in saying, okay, we're going to have a discussion about what's our favorite line. He picks his favorite line and then I pick my favorite line. And and I would say what eight out of 10 times we pick the yeah. same line uh, without, you know, not checking with each other, not, you know, not trying to like coordinate literally about eight out of 10 times. We kind of live in the same brain. Uh, <laughs> so set up your favorite quote, which is actually, I have a quote. I did pull another quote. Uh, but what was your favorite line from the movie? Uh, because it, it is the best. It is truly the best line. <laughs> one of the, uh, one of the few actual Christmas themed moments in the movie, uh, the character, oh shit, what's his name? It, is it Peter? No, it's it's the it's, it's, yeah, it's the girl who dies boyfriend, the one who yeah, the one, I, can't, uh, I can't remember his name, but anyway, he, he's just he's one of the blowhards. It might have been Graham, I think. Uh, he was he was dressed up as Santa, and they were doing like a little thing for kids, like uh, they were kind of helping kids kids out. And he pulls like some full blown bad Santa shit uh, the way he's talking in front of the kids. Yeah, here we go. Ho ho ho! Shit. Santa, please. Look, she's supposed to be going away with me for the weekend, goddammit. Well, we decided that we would go skiing for a few days, hmm? Yeah, and I've been looking forward to this for three weeks, bitch. Isn't Santa naughty? Oh, ho, ho, fuck. <laughs> and There's also, the kid on his lap. Yeah, let, yeah, I was going to say, let's set the stage here. There's a child on his lap this entire time. He's like, bitch. <laughs> yeah, ho, oh, oh, ho, oh, ho, fuck. I was but like, this is it's just like the scene, like the visual is even better. Like yeah. the, the fact that there's a kid sitting on, on his lap and there's like a line of kids there. It's funny. Well, what I also love about it is, is because you're actually a father, you have children. I don't. Oh, yeah. So I would be that Santa. I'd be like, what the fuck? Like, I, <laughs> You'd be a good Santa. I'd be the bad Santa. Trust me, because I'm not, <laughs> I'm not a, I'm not a guy with children and nor do I really enjoy children. So I would not be that guy. I would definitely <laughs> be, I, Santa. I would be the perfect guy to be like, ho, 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 fuck. Uh, I'm going to book you as a Santa. And I, I just want to watch you <laughs> have to listen to kids for like, three hours in a row that'd be so hilarious it's gonna be like that episode of the sopranos where bobby bacala has to dress up as santa and he's just really not into it and it's it's hilarious <laughs> we've never seen the sopranos uh <laughs> all right my favorite line in this movie uh, is one of the more terrifying lines and it's kind of the line that sets up the ending in the movie which is when the cops finally do trace the call which by the way <laughs> tracing a call in 1974 did not look like a lot of fun Oh uh, God! <laughs> one guy, one guy. They have to set up like a trap line tied to the police station. And the other police officers literally running around the back end of a telephone company trying to trace down the call. It was it was insane. I was like, Good Lord, how hard was it? I mean, you had to be a serious serious ass detective to solve crimes in the seventies because Jesus Christ, man, like this is this is not easy. Uh, but anyways, this is the moment where Sergeant Nash calls to tell Jess where the calls are coming from. Please, Miss Bradford, please just do as I tell you. Okay. I I'll get Phil and Bob. No, 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 don't do that, Jess. Jess, the caller is in the house. The calls are coming from the house. Jess! that's when reality sets in the killer is in the house and she's realized that her friends are probably dead and she's all alone 
this this I'm going to digress for just a minute here because it, it reminds me of something that that kind of bugs the shit out of me about this movie. We talk about good police work. Um, the first the first kill, the very first kill that happens like almost right away is a pretty terrifying uh, murder. The woman gets like suffocated with a bag and then she's she's stuck in the attic the entire time. And I'm uh, correct me if I'm wrong, but the timeline is at least a few days, correct? Uh, I think it's over. I think it's actually over like two days because the yeah, first maybe two days. Yeah. Nobody thinks to check the attic. <laughs> Nobody thinks to check the attic where this woman's body, two women's body, because Miss uh, Miss Max also up there too. Nobody bothers to go up there and look. That actually is driving me insane right now. Yeah. When I think about that call and I go, did no one look upstairs in the attic, which is probably where the killer's hiding the entire time, right? Well, so, okay, so here's the interesting part about this. So they actually said that during the movie, they said, you know, how many phones are in the house? And they said the one phone, and then there's another phone, and then the phone in the in the uh, house mother's room, you know what I mean? And so right. we're meant to believe there's no other phone in the house. So when she discovers there's a phone, you know, there's a phone call coming from the house, I assume no one believes it could be coming from the attic, you know, however that happened. You know, sure, they brought but the I mean, even aside from the calls, the missing girl, right? Like yeah. they, they scour the house, they go out, they go out searching for, no one goes, hey, we should check the attic. Well, no and to, one says okay, that. Okay, so, to, okay, now I'm not, I'm not defending because I agree. Actually, I do agree because. <laughs> here you come defending it though, David, But I am going to, here's the, so when they, when they originally, when they're originally looking for the girl who's gone missing, they don't think she's been murdered. They think she's gone missing. So they look in her room, they try to find evidence of where she's gone. Again, no one is believing that the actual killings are happening in the house, that these girls are being attacked in the house. So until, until Jess opens the door and finds uh, Barb and and Phil dead, you know, stabbed to death. Does she really realize, you know, after the call, after the cops tell her the calls are coming from inside the house, do they actually believe the terror is in there? So I think a little bit of what you're saying, I agree with you wholeheartedly, by the way, check the freaking attic. Good Lord. It's like, it's like not <laughs> checking the, the basement the attic before we but, decide that the house is clear. But that being said, I think part of us, like part of our point of view, when we say that is, we know the killer's there. You know what I mean? Like they're not thinking that the killer's in the house. They're not thinking this guy is stalking them in the house. You know what I mean? So I think they're playing it that they're not worried that there's a threat in because the, there's no evidence that she's been attacked or left for dead or her, there's no blood. You know what I mean? Like, sure. No, so, there's no evidence at yeah, all. So but in when that, you're looking for somebody, there's a giant attic in this I house. I know. But again, that's, again, they're not thinking that she, first, they're not thinking she's dead, but second, they're thinking she's not in the house. So they're not, they're not searching the house. You know what I mean? So in that regard, I get it. I agree. It seems stupid not to search the entire house, but in that regard, I would say they had no idea that the killer was actually just freaking hanging out, you know, chilling in the attic. You know what I mean? So <laughs> it just drove me nuts. I was like, this attic is humongous. And everyone, I mean, clearly Mrs. McNew was in the house. You know, yeah. she went up there to look for her cat. No. So other people had to have known that the attic was there and nobody thought to look up there. Drives yeah. me nuts. Oh, uh, let's talk about best scare, uh, because there were a couple of good scares in this movie. So, Patrick, what was your favorite scare in Black Christmas? Um, when Jess is actually being attacked by the madman in the house that we don't know whether at this point, we, I, I still think we didn't know if it was the boyfriend or not. Um, she gets attacked by him and he, he lets off this maniacal laugh. And again, you never see him like there's an eyeball, there's an arm, you never see him. But that laugh was just he was so maniacal and crazy. It really got it actually got under my skin. I was like, man, that is genuinely creepy. And it's kind of a weird because it's not really a scare per se, but it is creepy. 
unnerving. Yeah, unnerving, very. very unnerving. And when he grabs her by the hair, it's freaky. You know what I mean? Yeah. Like it's really, it's really creepy. She grabs him, and he grabs her, and she freaks out, and he screams. He's cackling, laughing. Yeah, it's really off-putting. Uh, really unnerving. That's one hundred percent true. That's that's a that's one hundred percent true. Um, my favorite scare, and I know I I know people probably get sick of me saying this on the podcast, but it's true. Is that you know sometimes my favorite scare, what I believe are the most effective scares are the ones that you can see coming because you're just kind of waiting for something bad to happen. And I think the first kill when the girl gets attacked in her closet and he suffocates her to death. Now I will say suffocating a person to death is probably one of the like scariest ways in my opinion to die. You know what I mean? Like not being able to get literally like suffocating. You can't catch a breath like that. Just that terrifies me. Uh, so in and of itself, that, just seems horrific and just watching her with a plastic bag wrapped around her head, the life literally being sucked out of her face. That is just terrifying. So even though I know it's coming, you see, you, you know, it's there just when it bounces out and comes right at you, it is still very terrifying. Hell yeah. No, I mean, that's one of the more effective scenes in the whole movie. Yeah, absolutely. To that point, what is the best kill in this movie, Patrick? Uh, there was, there was actually a, a couple of good kills. I think every kill is like good. Um, but man, there's one that cannot com- nobody compete with. You can't compete with the unicorn kill. The killer grabs this glass unicorn, and I think he kills Margot Robbie's. Ki- yeah. uh, I mean, Mar- not Margot Robbie, Margot <laughs> Kidder, Margot, Ki- Margot Kidder's uh, uh, character with it, right? Correct. Yeah, Barb. Yeah, I mean, that's a full blown like you. T- you mentioned Bava earlier. That's a full blown Italian horror kill. Like it just the the shimmering the sh- the shine coming off of the glass and the the stabbing and the sh- and the, uh, the shadowed face with just the eye showing and the stab I mean it's a, it was a thing of beauty believe it or not I mean just cinematically again you're making a real movie you just want to make things look as good as possible what a scene yeah that was that's the most visceral you know what I mean that's the most visceral yes. when you see that it's. It is, and and you again going back to what you said about the Mario Bava, you know, talking about the Bay of Blood with the point of view of the killer. You know, yes, this is that was a scene that really reminded me of, you know, Giallo of of great Italian horror. And you know, yeah. I've said before, I'm not the biggest Italian horror fan, but there are definitely Italian horror films that I love, and that element is really scary and really visceral, and just feels you know, real, you know what I mean? feels real yeah. in that moment. And yeah, that is so technically that, that is, I'll agree. That is the best kill. And, and that is really scary in that moment. And, you know, just to add in a quick you know side note to mine, that is the best kill, but much like the best line, I'll throw out another one. And I'll just go back to the plastic bag over her head. Mm-hmm. That is just watching her, you know, scream and you can't scream. And that's just, there's just something so off putting about that. So unnerving because again, the way that people are killed in this movie like a real serial killer can really happen. This isn't a dream demon, you know, stalking you at night. This isn't, you know, a six foot eight zombie. Max Hook was a little hard. A little bit, a little bit, a little bit, but I'm saying like, you know, in terms of like, you know, feeling it, you know, when you think about suffocation, like that's, that's like, there's, there's moments in some movies, like when we see a person, like when uh, a killer drowns somebody in a movie, they hold their head underwater. Like that's always one of the ones that triggers me a little bit. Cause I'm like, Oh God, it just, you know, Oh, it just it just seems so horrific. Like you can't fight your way out and you're just suffocating. Like that just seems like such a horrific way to die. 
And that moment when he jumps out and literally wraps a dry cleaning bag around her head and you just see her, you know, stuff, the, the life just kind of drain from her eyes. And then the entire movie, you keep getting flashbacks up and they're not flashbacks, like flashes yeah. of this dead girl with this plastic bag wrapped around her head and the look the same on her face or her, her mouth open, her eyes open, terrified. That's yeah. got to be one of my and the ending scene. Holy crap. When you realize the killer's still there and Jess is probably going to die and they show the girl, the first girl who died, her face still in the window of that attic, eyes open, mouth open, covered in that plastic bag and they pan out and that phone's ringing. Oh man, that, that's got to be one of my favorite closing scenes in a horror movie ever. It's a great closing scene, but it reiterates just how bad <laughs> the police worker was in that moment because she's literally sitting in front of the window. Like you could just look at the house from like 10 feet away and go, Hey, who's that sitting in that window up there? Like, <laughs> well, again, nobody bothered to look. again, I'm going with, <laughs> I'm going with cinematic choices in the eight, in the seventies, because listen, if we, disbelief if is we an really, old and tried and I mean, true come on, cinematic if, form and they didn't have it there. And we really want to start picking things apart. I'm sure you and I could pick apart a lot of our favorites. So I'm sure that I could yeah, sit here right, and do, do the same thing to, you know, Texas Chainsaw Massacre, but you know, I love that movie, so I just choose to believe it's perfect. Uh, in this case, <laughs> I would I would agree, but yes, I think in that again, and I'm not def I'm defending it, but I'm just saying like they thought they had their man. They thought Peter was the killer. Why would they search for anything else? Uh, you know, he was a psycho. And tell you, you know, they did. A, I'll tell you what. You know, we talk about Jess being a great character. You know, Peter being an unhinged boyfriend. They did a pretty good job painting him as a psycho. Like they did oh, yeah, do a good no, job of him being, that. you know, him being him being a you know overbearing potentially abusive psychotic boyfriend. Uh, they did a damn good job painting him in that light. Um, let's talk about rewrite of the Living Dead because we do this occasionally. Now, to be clear, we're not going to rewrite the entire movie. There's a case, there are cases in the past where we've tried to rewrite an entire movie because something's just really bad. But in this particular instance, we're just going to talk rewriting one part of the movie. Uh, and I'll go first here because my one rewrite now I said that I loved that they actually stuck with the cops and they showed you like the cops doing their jobs, you know, tapping the phones, all that kind of, stuff. I actually really enjoyed that. And I said that they didn't go down the typical lane of horror films where they just show, you know, the girl getting killed in the shower, the girl getting killed in bed, all that, you know, the, the typical things you see. One thing I wish we did see, though, is combine those two. And what I mean by that is have a bigger body count, because ultimately there's yeah. five dead bodies. I said four earlier when I talked to you on text message, there's actually five because he kills the cop outside the car. He slits his throat, which is pretty nasty as well. I wish we'd actually seen that, though. Uh, but mm -hmm. we do see the cop with his, with his throat slash, but ultimately, you know, he kills the first girl, he kills Barb, he kills Phil, uh, and he kills the house mother. You know what I mean? And I just feel like in a sort, cause at the beginning of the movie, when they get their first obscene phone call, when Barb answers the phone, there's like 20 girls there by the yeah. end of the movie, there's one. Now I, I went to college and I've been around fraternity and sorority houses. I was never around one where there was only one person in the house. I'm not saying it never happens. I'm just saying like the point <laughs> of fraternity and sorority houses is there's like 30 people living there. You know what I mean? Rarely are you ever going to get a moment where there's not like two or three people just hanging out or whatever. So I wish they kind of upped the body count and actually had a couple more creative murders like that unicorn kill with Barb. I think if they would have tossed in a couple more like that, it would have just upped the ante. And I feel like, again, I'm not complaining. Not bad. I still love the movie. But I think like in a, in a modern version, you get like seven or eight dead people instead of four. 
Yeah, and I, I've never seen the modern one. I know you haven't either. I, I'd love to hear from somebody out there who has and, and what they did with it. Uh, but basically, my rewrite's the exact same thing, which is just up the body count because, like you said, there's 30. There's actually a lot of people that could be in that house. The kills that they did put on screen were creative and effective and interesting. Just give me more of them. Like, make this the best slasher I've ever seen. Just just stick to the what you guys are doing. And honestly, and I know you love the cop subplot, that could have been trimmed way down. The Margot uh, Kidder, uh, uh, Mrs. Mac uh, boozy thing could have been trimmed way down. Um, I, I, you could find, you could have found 15 more minutes. I mean, really, literally 15 more minutes worth of um, slashing, and they were doing a good job of it. So it's like you might as well just keep doing what you're really good at here. Because you got plenty of fodder, and it it would it would make for such a great movie. Because I think the the most important subplot is Jess's subplot, the abortion subplot. So the rest could kind of tighten up and give me more of these good slashes. Because this is this is better slashing than what's in the original Halloween. Um, if you haven't listened to that episode, you know I kind of I kind of dug in and said you know Halloween's my least favorite slasher of the big four. And because the original kills in that movie are kind of tame for the most part, the kills in Black Christmas, I think, are way more intense. If I'd have seen more of them, this would be a hard movie to compete with. Yeah, I think if you, I think where you want to maybe change the cop scenes, I would just drop that entire subplot with the with the little girl going missing. And again, I know they're trying to tie that into maybe saying yeah, that you have was plenty the kill. to drop. Yeah, yeah, drop that and just go with the other stuff. You know, just go with more girls. You know, and and again, in that and again, you don't have to go down the typical road of you know, oh, here's a girl in the shower, she's gonna be naked, we got to kill her. Just you know, girls coming back from the fundraiser. Okay, you know, like little things. You know, you could add in a few more people and 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 just up the body count. And then it really does become a you know, horrific atrocity when we're talking about eight or nine dead bodies at the end of the movie, which really makes us sound like sick, twisted freaks, Patrick. But we are horror fans, and horror fans this also. This is a horror are, podcast. Exactly, exactly. Now, this is, of course, tis the season, Patrick. This is our Christmas-themed episode of the holiday episode of Rewind of the Living Dead. We did, as I said last year, we did Gremlins. This year, we're doing Black Christmas. And one thing, and there was a great episode of uh, of uh, Eli Roth's uh, History of Horror on AMC, which you can see on, I think, AMC Plus, and I think they got on Shudder, too, um, where they did a holiday-themed horror episode, and they talked about Black Christmas. They talked about Silent Night, Deadly Night. They talked about uh, all the different holiday-themed horror films. They talked about Krampus, and they talked about other ones as well. April Fool's Day, I think they did, and whatever. Uh, Patrick, you and I are both, you know, aspiring filmmakers, let's say. Uh, if you were going to do a horror film around a holiday, what would be the holiday you'd pick and why? Because there are, and I'm not saying you can't pick one that's not already been done because Christmas, there's a lot, but there's still, sure. there's still, uh, there's still land to be mined in a, in a Christmas horror film. You know, I don't, I think there's a, I think there's one or maybe two Thanksgiving themed Chris, uh, horror films or takes place yeah, around things. Uh, of course, April Fool's Day. Uh, you could say Leprechaun, I guess, technically is the St. Patrick's. <laughs> kind of, I guess. I don't know. Of course, Halloween, which is kind of funny. It took till 1978 for them to actually call a movie Halloween. Uh, but of course, there's a million, you know, version of some sort of Halloween-ish, you know, kind of, kind of things. But there's a lot of other uh, horror films out there that are around holidays. So if you were going to make a film around a holiday, Patrick, what would it be? Um, well, that's a real easy one for me. Um, it would be Columbus Day. Because I'm 32% Indigenous American, and and I mean there are people, there are plenty of people with way more percentage than I do. I have as Indigenous American. It's it's my most solid portion. The rest of me is kind of like a European mutt. Um, 
Columbus Day for people that are like indigenous, it might as well be like a zombie invasion. It might as well be that. And I've always kind of had this little idea of like taking it back to the 1400, the late 1400s when those boats arrive and take it from the perspective of indigenous peoples and like these these things coming from the ocean in the middle of the night and you know destroying their way of life like 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 the, they are this relentless wave of things that will come to destroy you it's 100 i don't i don't know if there's ever been a columbus day horror film or or anything like that um there've been a couple of great indigenous american horror films we talked about one on this on this uh podcast blood quantum which you should definitely watch it's a fantastic movie but yeah mine would be like let's take it all the way back to the original columbus day and show just how horrific it could be yeah that that to me strikes me as one that would be really really terrifying when you think about one that hasn't been done and and you talk about you know you could do an original you could also do like an updated version of that you know what i mean that is, yeah. that is equally scary you know what i mean and, and theme it around that because again that's kind of a i mean now you know it is in a lot of circles it is now called indigenous people's day as opposed to columbus day which i appreciate uh but yeah like that is that is something that hasn't been tackled before and that 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 hits pretty close to home for a lot of people you know what i mean so mm-hmm. uh that's one that could absolutely do that you know what i mean so uh, I would agree. I, I think that would be an interesting one for, um, you know, for for a holiday theme. Now, mine is much more generic only because it's my least favorite holiday. And it's the one that I think is the dumbest holiday. And it's the one that I think that if you're going to have a bunch of people get murdered, it's that day. And that is Valentine's Day. Uh, <laughs> I hate Valentine's Day. It is the stupidest. And it's not, listen, I've, I have a girlfriend, love her very much, been together for a decade. Uh, we've celebrated Valentine's Day together. We have, but over the last few years, since we've been together for so long, we've kind of just been like, you know what? This is kind of dumb. Like we can show appreciation for each other and buy flowers and go on dates without it being a stupid holiday. Uh, that and sweetest day, which is the other generic, stupid holiday, uh, either of those pick your, pick your poison, because that is literally just an excuse to go out and buy crap that you, that you could do on any other. My point being go out and do something sweet for the person you love on any other day. It doesn't have to be because it's on Valentine's freaking day. So let's go out and do a Valentine's day massacre and then just kind of ruin it for everybody. I thought for a second that when you when you were building up to talking about the holiday, I thought you were talking about Black Friday. And I was <laughs> like, you know what? Black Friday would be a really good horror movie. You know, I actually thought about that because there was one year I went out Black Friday shopping years ago and I had I it was like the first year I'd ever done Black because I, I didn't I mean I knew what Black I wasn't more, I knew what Black Friday was, but I never knew the feeding frenzy of black Friday. You know, I never knew like how crazy people got like, I knew there were sales, but I never knew people stood in line for like days to go get like a TV or whatever. Like I never understood that. So there was a year, several years ago, I went to a black Friday. My, my ex-girlfriend was like, let's go black Friday shopping. I'm like, okay. And so at that point we got up at like 6am on Friday morning, stood in line. I'm like, this is insane. Why are we doing this? And then we got inside and Oh my God, it was like a zombie apocalypse. People knocking each other over there was this one i'll never forget i was standing by a bin looking for something this little kid had to be like three years old comes running at me and i'm like where's the parent at the kid literally bumps into my leg and just bounces off me and falls over and i cracked up laughing and the the parents come running to get their child because he's just running amok through the store uh yeah i think that would be a good one too like you just like imagine a zombie outbreak at like a best buy on black friday you get like half the town's population in one fell swoop you know what i mean yeah i think i think you could 
That I feel like that's something we could achieve. I think we should maybe consider uh, riding a Black Friday, <laughs> because I, I that's a that's a one location shoot, like it it all happens at you know in a, in a huge department store or whatever, like the whole night and there's a killer in there. I, there's 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 something there for yeah, sure. Yeah, I agree. You know what else? And what are they going to toss out here? We did our special uh, international themed uh, episode recently. You know, yeah. we we're talking about international. I would like to I would like to see like an international holiday like you know a holiday that we don't celebrate here in the states that you could find out could be a really cool how I'm sure they're out there. I mean, we talk about like our your lack of knowledge of, of international Japan horror films, which is why big penis festival. That could be a really great <laughs> holiday. Whatever holiday it is, whatever it is, there's gotta be a cool one out there though. Like, I feel like, I feel like Russia's gotta have one. that's like really uh, weird and like, you know, off putting, you know, Russian holiday is a horror story. The way they talk about shit. Yeah. But like, I feel like there's gotta be an international one. You know what I mean? Like a really like weird, you know what I mean? Like, cause yeah. you always, you always hear about like really strange and, and off putting, like, like uh, mythology from other countries. I think it'd be really cool to do like a holiday themed horror from another country that we don't necessarily understand or know here in the States. That's kind of where Krampus came from though, right? Like yeah, Krampus is yeah, like a Scandinavian thing. Yeah, yeah, it is. Yeah, it is. So, well, yeah, I mean, so there you go. The original, I mean, the original, you know, Santa Claus, like, you know, the original Santa Claus, which is where Krampus came from. Like it was a much more terrifying story than, than the version <laughs> of the, you know, the jolly old fat man who comes down your chimney and leaves you presents. Yeah. Uh, the Coca-Cola, like sometime in the ni- early 1900s, like, hey, you know, that one story where that that thing murders people on Christmas <laughs> night. What if we just made it into a jolly old guy? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So I but I think there's there's, uh, you know, I'm. When we talk about horror films we love, typically speaking, I, you know, I don't really, the themed ones kind of, I won't say they bug me. I'm not as into them because I don't like that, you know, because like, you know, when you think about like Silent Night Deadly, now I'm not saying you couldn't watch it any other time during the year, but it kind of makes sense to watch it at Christmas, right? Like it's a Christmas horror film. Uh, You know, I kind of like, you know, having all year horror. I don't want, you know, I don't really like having anything defined around a particular day or week or whatever, you know, but that being said, yeah, and I damn you because Black Friday should have been my pick. That is actually much oh, better. Man, that's good. Yeah, but I just hate Valentine's Day, so I picked that one because I'm like, you know what? If I was gonna see like you know you know dead bodies flying around like you know rag dolls on fire, uh, it would be on Valentine's Day. Um, so yeah. All right. Uh, last category, of course, is always here on the show. Is it scary? Granted, again, we we've been a little more critical towards the '70s horror films because. You know, technology and scares have gotten much more uh, intense, I would say, over the last you know, 20, 30 years. But uh, Black Christmas, Patrick, is it scary? You know, I, th- I think for its time and it com- but we should mention it came out the same year as Texas Chainsaw Massacre, which is legitimately terrifying to this day, which is kind of crazy to think about. And they're both 1974 films. I think Black Christmas was legitimately scary to anyone who sat in that theater. Um, I think I think everyone was freaked the hell out uh, watching this movie back in 1974. Does that necessarily translate to freaking out today? For some people, yes, I would say. I would say actually the the more social uh, uh, stories in the film, the the social subplot of, of of Jess and her abortion. That to me, that that is the actual terrifying thing. That's what I would say. Yes, it is scary in that respect. Uh, the the actual slasher elements, while very entertaining, to me aren't very scary at all. Except for that, like a couple of moments with the. There's a couple of key moments, but like that isn't the thread of this movie because it has so many subplots that it's it sort of dilutes it. Like it when it's good, it's good, and it's everything you want in a horror movie. 
but when it's when it's go when it diverges into the subplots, it loses its horrorness. If that makes any sense. Yeah, I understand, and I, I get where you're coming from. I would say. I judge it from kind of like my girlfriend's point of view. She's a little bit younger than me. And I remember when she watched the exorcist the first time, I think I've said this on the show before. She's like, I didn't really find it scary. Like it didn't really, she's like, it wasn't a bad movie. She's like, I just didn't find it scary. And I remember when I saw exorcist kind of like when I saw night of the living dead, when I was a kid, it scared the shit out of me. Uh, Mm -hmm. You know what I mean? So I think for its time, kind of like what you said, if you grew up in a time where you had, you know, rotary telephones and you had, uh, you know, you had, you know, the the technology at that time and you were grew up with that urban legend of, you know, the kill the calls are coming from inside the house, which, again, we've all kind of heard growing up. I think this movie would have been terrifying, especially, you know, for teenage girls. Good God. Imagine going yeah. to sorority after seeing this movie. I mean, this movie is legitimately terrifying based on all those factors. Now, in 2021, for a modern audience of cell phones, I mean, there's people who don't even know what a rotary phone. We talked about that in a past episode. <laughs> people who don't even know what a rotary phone is. And you and I are like, oh, Jesus, we're old. Uh, but there are people who have never seen, who have never understood even having a home phone. You know what I mean? Right. So in that regard, if you showed this movie to a 20 year old, would they be scared? They'd probably be confused more than they would be scared. Like what the hell? Like, huh? <laughs> Why are these cops so competent? <laughs> but That's you know, so weird. Yeah. But like, but for that time, as you said, in 1974, I guarantee you this terrified audiences, you know what I mean? Like in that time, mm-hmm. I guarantee it was a horrifically scary movie. So, I'm sa- I'm going to say it's very scary based on when it was made. Is it scary today? I still enjoyed it. There's still some scary elements about it. But again, I grew up in a time when all these things could have happened. You know what I mean? Uh, mm-hmm. In 2021, you know, kid 20 years old is probably going to be like, what? Why wouldn't they just call right. the cops on their cell phone? Like, oh, yeah, they didn't have that. You know, why didn't they just use caller ID? They didn't have that. You know, all these things. Why that didn't you anyone could... look in the ba- in the attic? Jesus <laughs> Christ. There's, an a- there's a giant attic. Does no one think to look in there? Yeah. So and once again, Patrick, I'm telling you, you're only saying that because you know the killer's up there. Anyways, uh, uh, they knew there was an attic in the house. Everybody knew that. Uh, but <laughs> yeah, yeah just, no one thought to look. Yeah, I would say it is scary. Though. I would say based on, you know, again, I'm judging from audiences of that era i think they probably would have found it terrifying and and no, i'm sure i, I do if, think that if you and i were kids back then like 18 19 year old kids going to see this in 1974 we probably would have been terrified as well hell yeah i would have been like oh it it makes men look so shitty <laughs> I, i'm never gonna get laid again like <laughs> because honestly and in in all seriousness it's terrifying to be a woman and there's not enough horror films that reflect that and yeah. black christmas reflects how hard it can be just to be a woman navigating normal life. Like, yeah. like the, the Jess subplot is not even a horror subplot. It's just scary to be with a, with a guy who is like going nuts on you because you're not going to comply with him. Yeah. Like that's, that's why I'm saying this is a must see for women out there. Like if you're a fan of horror and you're, and you identify as a woman, you got to watch this movie and see what, see, see it. It's like, it's on the must see list. I put it right up there weirdly with Slumber Party Massacre, which we've talked about on the show a way long time ago. If you listen to that episode, it's a weird outlier in the slasher genre in that the women have all the agency and all the power and all the competence. It's a rare thing. It's a rare thing, and and Slumber Party Massacre is not known as a high-quality slasher film, but it tells a very unique story. Black Christmas, another incredibly unique story that I think is I can't miss. You've got to see it. And here's an interesting thing real quick before we get out of here. A lot of people talk about Black Christmas and Texas Chainsaw Massacre as two of the original slasher films, but also two of the original Final Girls. 
You got Jess, who survives, or we imagine she probably ends up being killed, but, you know, she survives what we believe is the original killer. And, of course, Sally Hardesty escapes Leatherface at the end of Texas Chainsaw Massacre. Really interesting subplot here, Patrick. Mm -hmm. Do you know when these films were released? Mm, Tell me. Black Christmas and Texas Chainsaw Massacre were both released on October 11th, 1974. No shit. They came out on the exact same day. Oh in, my god! The scariest weekend of all time at the box office. Did you imagine 19- that? Like trying October to be like 1974. Yeah, imagine because we talked about we did the review of the burning on the show back in the day. We talked about the burning and how burning is very much like it feels like a, a it feels like a Friday the Thirteenth ripoff until you realize the burning was actually written before Friday the Thirteenth. It just didn't get its financing and made until afterwards. And the reason why the movie didn't do as well is because everyone saw it as this is just a carbon copy of Friday the Thirteenth. Problem was, it actually should have been before Friday the Thirteenth, but it didn't come out till after. So you know, you kind of get buried by a better film, you know, a bigger film that came out before you. It's so ironic that two of the big themes that come out of these films with the final girl, which is such a you know, huge trope of, of slasher films now and forever. Uh, they came out on the exact same day in 1974. That's wild. Yeah. And they're, and they're very women forward movies too. What a trip. That's a, that's crazy. I did not know that. Yeah. Crazy. October 11, 1974. And the really, but the funny, well, fun, not funny, but like the crazy part is black Christmas pretty much. I mean, it was a bombed. It didn't bomb. It had a budget of $600,000. It made $4.1 million, which back then that's a pretty good gross, but it got kind of, the critics were not kind to it. And it really became a cult classic years later. Like it kind of mm-hmm. became, you know, a film that it a lot of people love now. Yeah. yeah. Uh, for Texas Chainsaw Massacre, that movie was made for around a hundred thousand dollars, give or take a little bit less, a little bit more. And it made 30 point nine million at the box office which was massive and it was a huge i mean granted there were critics that hated it because of the violence and everything but it was pretty much a you know universally beloved like you know breakthrough horror film of its era in 1974 so again kind of crazy when you think about like how different those two films are in terms of the directions they took afterwards how you know Texas Chainsaw Massacre became one of the biggest franchises. We just talked about in our reaction last week, the reaction podcast, there's a new one coming out. It feels like there should have been a black Christmas franchise. Like that could have easily been something they did over and over again, like every 10 years, but they didn't. Yeah. It didn't seem, it didn't seem to to catch fire. Like, like Texas Chainsaw Massacre did both, both well-executed movies. I mean, I think uh, to steal the parlance from girl, that scary podcast, uh, you know, rewind of the living dead is a Texas Chainsaw Massacre stand account. Let's be clear about that. Yeah, it is. Uh, <laughs> we are, but black Christmas, a well, well done movie, um, with great themes, like really solid themes because much like Texas Chainsaw Massacre, it treats itself as a film first, a horror second. And uh, I think it was just, uh, you know, it's it's a must-see. It's a yeah. 100% must-see. And it's really, and it's, in this day and age, you would never see this happen. Two films of this kind would never open on the same day like this. You know what I mean? Like, it's kind of crazy. That's crazy that they open the same day. Oh well, my I, God. Looked it, I looked it up. I looked, only looked it up because I was kind of curious because the whole Final Girl thing, that's what made me look it up because I was kind of curious. Like, even though, I mean, again, even if Black, even if Texas Chainsaw came out in September and this came out like two months later, the obviously right. pr- production-wise, they would have been on the same bar. But technically, you know, one would have come before the other in terms of the whole Final Girl thing. They came out on the same day. Hey, what a day, man. Right? I'm going to get October 11th, 1974 tattooed on me. All right. I and mean, that's just Jesus like an iconic Christ. day of horror history. Oh, my God. I love that fact. Uh, I'm so glad I learned that. I, yeah. you guys, you learn, you learn things on this podcast. Trust me. <laughs> 
So good. So good. All right, folks, we're going to get out of here. Uh, make sure you come back and visit us uh, very soon because our next podcast, Patrick, we know what it is. It is our year in spectacular. We are going to be doing our best of 2021 podcast. Last year's version, best of 2020, remains one of our biggest podcasts to date. Uh, where we gave our list of our five favorite horror films of 2020. We're going to do the same thing again this year, probably a little bit more in depth because we've been doing this a little bit longer, but we are going to give our best of the best in 2021 in our year in podcast coming up next week. So make sure you come back for that. Uh, For now, enjoy this podcast. Enjoy your holidays. Uh, We appreciate everyone that's been here the entire year with us here on Rewind of the Living Dead. If you have questions, comments, movies you want us to review, Please hit us up on Twitter anytime you can find me at Damon Martin and you are at director Patrick. And you can also send us an email. If that's your thing, you can find us at rot living dead at gmail.com. That's rot living dead at gmail.com. Send us your emails, comments, questions, movies you want us to review. Please let us know. Uh, we'd love to hear from you on that as well. Make sure you check us out on all of your favorite podcast platforms, Spotify, Apple podcasts, Amazon music. And of course you can always find us over on my website, nerdcoremovement.com. Thank you as always for tuning in. We will see you next week for another edition of rewind of the living dead. Thanks for tuning in. We'll see you then. Peace.